0: morning, everybody. Well, in 1866, uh, there was a minister named Phillips Brooks who took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and actually spent Christmas Day walking through the streets of Bethlehem. Uh, and he was so moved by that experience that he came back to his church in Boston. Uh, and a few years later, he wrote this poem, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which are the lyrics for the song that we just got done singing. But obviously, lyrics don't make a song. It needed some music as well. And, and he really wanted to see this poem become something that his whole congregation could enjoy. So he tasked his church organist, a guy named Louis Redner, with composing a melody to fit these lyrics too. Now, Redner was not a professional composer or musician. I mean, he played at church, but by day, he was an estate agent in the city of Boston. So he had a day job. He was working nine to five. He's a busy guy. Didn't leave a whole lot of extra time for composition. So he found himself in this really uncomfortable situation of sitting at his piano the Saturday night before the Sunday service where the song was supposed to be unveiled, still with an unfinished song. And so he plugged away throughout the day into the evening and eventually came up with a melody. And what seems like kind of this last-minute melody seems to have been just the right ticket because this is still, by and large, by a huge margin, the most popular musical setting for O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I like the backstory of this song because it kind of illustrates how different parts can come together seemingly at the last minute at just the right time, in just the right way. And that's true not just of this carol, it's also true of the Christmas story itself when you think about it, because there were all of these different parts and pieces and threads that were all woven together at just the right time that we call the Christmas moment. And this is an idea that the New Testament actually talks about itself in in several places, Probably the most easy or simple place to see it's in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come, some translations your Bible might say, when, when the appointed time had fully arrived, or when the fullness of time had arrived at just the right moment. That's when God acted. There were all of these different pieces that that came together. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we go through the Christmas story in the book of Luke chapter 2, looking at the Christmas moment and why it was just the right time for God to act the way that he did. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Luke chapter 2. Uh, If you don't have your Bibles with you, you can follow along on the screen behind me, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device and tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner. You'll find a sermon notes tool along with our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with, to take notes on, and to make the most out of our time together this morning. So what was it about the Christmas moment that was just the right time? What were all these different threads that came together in this way? Well, for starters, we've got to look at the historical setting. There's something about the context of history that made this just the right moment, and we're reminded of that when we look at the opening verses of Luke's story in chapter 2. It starts like this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor in Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So within these opening verses, there's a lot of like mile markers that let us know what time this happened, what was going on in history, and, and what the setting was. And the first is right there in those opening words, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Augustus was one of the first Roman emperors, arguably, depending on how you define that role, could have been the first Roman emperor. His grandfather was Julius Caesar, you have probably heard that name. And Julius had been embroiled in a civil war within the Roman Republic for a good while. And with his grandson, Octavian, whom we know as Augustus, with his aid, he actually won that civil war over Mark Antony and Cleopatra, only to be assassinated just shortly thereafter. And so with that void and that vacancy, uh, Augustus, whom we know, or Octavian, became the Caesar. He became the emperor of the Roman Empire. And under Augustus, there came this mass decree and this declaration that we call the Pax Romana, or the Great Peace of Rome. And this was a huge deal. It was this assurance that there would be peace and stability across the entirety of the empire from border to border. And this was... Unheard of, because for decades and decades and decades, there had just been civil war, after civil war, after conflict, after uprising. And finally, the people were going to have some stability, which really encouraged them to get out and to travel out across the empire and to like, do business and things, because up to this point, there were merchants that traveled and traded, but most people were a little leery of, of going to far-off distant lands. And you probably would be too if you constantly were hearing about uprising over here or, or conflict over there. A, a good example of this we even see in our modern context. You look at the city of Portland. Uh, last summer in 2020, there was a, a number of... of um, Up, not uprisings, but conflicts that arose in different cities, and there was destruction of property, and there was violence, and so on. And a number of cities were able to quell that violence, but Portland took kind of a different approach to things. And as a result, that violence spilled out over the summer into the the fall, into the winter, into the next year. And even as recently as a few weeks ago, with the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, there was a fresh new wave of malfeasance that sprung up in that city. And that coupled with independently rising crime rates, has really given Portland kind of a bad reputation as an unsafe city. And even Portland's own Bureau of Tourism and and Commerce made a report recently that they're seeing huge economic losses because conventions don't want to go there, and trade shows don't want to go there, and tourists don't want to go there. It's a modern-day example of of what was happening in the ancient world. But with the Pax, there was this peace there's this assurance that things are going to be stable and easy, and so people were willing to go out and to travel long distances and to do business. And they would have an easier time getting to these far-off places because of another important historical detail. In the Roman Empire, there was this expansive road system that was pretty highly developed, and it connected every corner of the empire and allowed people to travel a whole lot easier with their goods than if they were to try to travel over like poor dirt roads or over open country. And they were able to travel not just physically easier, but also politically easier. They could go into these different cities and different states and provinces and regions unchecked. So long as you were traveling within the borders of the empire, there there was no border check. There was no like TSA-style pat-downs or anything like that. You could just go. It was really as easy as as us traveling over into Iowa, where the sun shines brighter and the gas is cheaper, right? Right? Like, that's what it was like for them. And once you got to these far-off, distant lands, you'd have a pretty easy time communicating with people, even if they were of very different ethnic backgrounds, because almost everybody in the Roman Empire spoke at least a passable level of Greek. That was the trade language of the day. If you wanted to make money, you needed to know Greek. And so most people spoke this, and they could communicate with relative ease amongst each other. Sometimes whenever we're preaching our sermons, I'll pause and I'll say, well, we'll look at a word and I'll say, hey, you know, just so you know, the New Testament was originally written in, in ancient Greek. And this is why. Because it's during this time period that the New Testament came about. And the authors wanted everybody to be able to read this good news about Christ. And so they chose the language that almost everybody could understand. Greek. And so you've got all these different historical details all kind of coming together with this new stable environment and this easy travel and this easy communication. And they all just kind of coalesce for the first time, really, to to this level and magnitude in the Roman Empire. The world hadn't really ever seen something like this to this scale before. It was the ideal time if you, like, had this message that you wanted to get out as far as you could, to as many people as you could, for them to easily understand. Something like, I don't know, the gospel, for instance. On a historical level, there was a lot of things that really made this the ideal time for the coming of Christ and for the Christmas moment. And that's just one thread. There are a lot of different threads that are coming together. I mean, we can look at the pages of history, but we also need to look at the pages of scripture. Because there was something about the prophetic timing of all this that made this moment the right moment. And Luke kind of reminds us of that as we keep reading the Christmas story. Look at verse 4. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So this is the familiar part of the Christmas story. This is the part that we all know so well that we see on Charlie Brown, and that we, you know, we, we see this again and again. But sometimes that familiarity works against us a little bit because we can easily overlook some of the details and even some of the peculiar phrases that Luke uses in telling this story. But in each of them, he's reminding us of the prophetic timing of the moment. You take Bethlehem, for instance. We all know Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the manger, and and we see the nativity scenes, and sometimes we just forget that Bethlehem really was in the middle of nowhere. There was nothing special about this place at all. And yet God had foretold 700 or so years prior to the Christmas moment, that something really big was going to come out of this podunk town. He says in the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, "...but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah..." And that's just kind of the region where they were. He says, "...though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times." So even God admits that this place is just a speck on a map and that it's really tiny. And yet out of this podunk little town, God was going to bring somebody huge, which was really some surprising news. I mean, back in the day, way back in the day, Bethlehem had been associated with some famous people. This is where Ruth met Boaz in the book of Ruth, which was kind of a big deal. This is where King David grew up. That was like the most notable name that came out of this town. But all of that was a long, long time before Jesus. Since then, nothing really significant had developed there and Bethlehem really didn't play any important role in the region. In a lot of ways, our carol that we sing is an apt descriptor of the town. It says, "Oh, little town of Bethlehem, How still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. It's this picture of this quiet, sleepy little town that just sort of minds its own business as the bigger world and cosmos just buzz on by it, which is a pretty apt descriptor. I mean, Christmas carols are not always the most factually accurate songs. we got We Three Kings, for instance. I have no idea why we sing about three kings. There's probably many more than that, but we all assume there's just three people there. Or Away in a Manger sings about Jesus as this little baby lying in a manger, still and quiet. No crying he makes, the song says. I can promise you that wasn't the case. Babies, they cry. Little Drummer Boy, I don't even need to go into that. No mom is going to have a drummer boy there with her newborn in the manger. I don't know why we sing that song. It makes no sense. But this is actually probably pretty close. Bethlehem was just a really quiet town. In the days of Jesus, it had maybe at most about 1,000 people living there, probably closer to 700 from what archaeologists have found. It was just a little town. And big things like Jesus, the Savior of the world, don't come out of little towns. I mean, let's take our community. I love our community. Don't get me wrong. But if you were going to tell me that out of Monmouth, Illinois, would come something that would change the course of human history as we know it, I'd probably have a hard time believing that. Or you take my hometown, for instance. I grew up in a town in southern Illinois about the same size as Monmouth. The biggest thing to come out of Salem, Illinois, was Miracle Whip. Yeah, a local deli sold it to Kraft Foods for $300 back in the day. Now, Miracle Whip, I mean, it's big. I don't personally like it, but, you know, people know what it is. Like, Miracle Whip is here. Jesus is like up here, like this kind of thing that changes history. You don't, that doesn't happen in small towns. Maybe this, like on a good day, you know, you get a bone thrown to you. But this, that doesn't happen, and yet... Here we are in Luke chapter 2, little bitty podunk town of Bethlehem. Just as God said, something big is about to happen here. And then we've got the two other people in this story, Joseph and Mary, they get a mention. And each of them has some prophetic significance in their own right. I mean, Joseph, for instance, Luke describes him as coming from the house of David. And that's not just to let us know why he's in Bethlehem. That's also a reference to prophecy from about 700 or so years before Jesus. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, God is speaking through that prophet. And he's talking about this king that he's going to bring forth. A good and faithful and righteous and capable king. And chapter 11 really just describes how awesome this guy is going to be. But in chapter 11, verse 1, is the description of where this king is going to come from. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse, if you don't know, was the father of King David. And so this is a prophecy, this is a promise of God saying, from the line of King David, I'm going to bring forth this righteous, capable, faithful king. And here we have a guy named Joseph who happens to be from the family line of David, traveling to this podunk little town where God said something really big is about to happen. And we've got these different threads. They're starting to come together. But Mary's mentioned here too, like we said. We can't forget her because she gets a shout out. And she has her own significant role to play. I mean, obviously, like, somebody has to birth this baby. That's, that's a, a significant role. But from a prophetic point of view, Mary has a lot of significance. In that same book, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the virgin will, be, will conceive and give birth to a child and we will call him Emmanuel, God with us. It's still describing this, this awesome, faithful, capable king saying that he'll be born of a virgin. And here we have Mary, whom Luke describes in a rather peculiar way when you really consider it. He says this was Mary who was pledged to be married to Joseph and was expecting child. Now you might say, well, what's so weird about that? But what's weird is that Mary and Joseph were almost definitely married at this point. Like from every legal conceivable standpoint, they were married. There is no way on God's green earth that a good Jewish father is going to say to his teenage daughter, Oh, you want to travel several days journey away, unaccompanied, unchaperoned? with this man who is single, whom I, I, that's not going to happen. You're not doing that. There are very few fathers today who would let that happen, let alone in a highly conservative Jewish culture like this. They were almost certainly married in every conceivable way, except for one. They had not consummated the marriage, which in this culture was very much a part of finalizing the legality of it all. And we know that they hadn't conceived, or con, um, conceived, but hadn't um, consummated, because in the book of Matthew, Joseph makes the decision not to be with Mary until after she had given birth to this child, just so there's no confusion as to the miraculous origins of where he came from. And so here we have Mary, who has not been with her husband and yet is expecting child. This is Luke's kind of nudge to this prophetic promise of a virgin birth. So you've got the Virgin Mary over here, and you've got Joseph from the house of David over here, and they're traveling together to Podunk, Bethlehem. All of this foretold hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and yet all coalescing and coming together at just the right time for something really special to happen. There was something about the prophetic timing of all this that made it the right moment. So you've got the pages of history, and you've got the pages of Scripture all kind of coming together at this point. But even that isn't the full extent of it. As we read in the book of Romans, there was something about the condition of the human heart that made this just the right moment. It wasn't just about what God had already done. It was what was happening inside of humanity as well. If we look at the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 6, this is what it says. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time. What made it the right time? Well, we were still powerless, he says. And now, the astute listener, you might be saying to yourself, well, hold on, this isn't about Christmas. This is about the cross. But we can't think about the former without remembering the latter. Because the Christmas story is really just the beginning of the gospel story. It's all one big event, this jesus event of his coming and his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his victory it's the gospel story you see the christmas story has a very specific purpose in mind it's not just to produce a baby in a manger it's to produce a savior and that's what our our carol even celebrates in that last verse verse four says "O holy child of bethlehem descend to us we pray Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. It's a plea, not for some baby in a manger, it's a plea for a Savior. And that's what God delivered in Christ at the Christmas moment was the birth of Emmanuel, God with us, this foretold king that would come and rescue us and save us. And for whatever reason, this was the moment where the human heart was ready to accept that gift. Now, we might ask the question, well, what specifically was it about the human condition that made this the right moment? Right? Like, like what, what, what was happening? Why did God choose this moment in particular? Why didn't he act earlier? Like, were we less powerless against sin then and i'll tell you i don't know that's a really good question but i don't know i know that in scripture god has provided a, a number of answers to a huge number of questions and he speaks very clearly on those and when he does we can definitely affirm them but i've also learned that when god isn't crystal clear on things it's usually best not to put words in his mouth usually it doesn't work out super well but here's one other thing i've learned as well the right gift can be given at the wrong time. And when that happens, that gift is usually discarded. I know this because I learned it from a rather embarrassing story, which I will share with you now. I was in college, I was my freshman year of college. Uh, I was home, and a relative had gifted to me an automatic jump starter for my car you know, a little device you hook to the battery terminals and you press it, and it, Kicks it right up. A very good, practical, wise gift to have, right? Especially whenever I was going to school six hours away from home where I didn't know a whole lot of people. A phenomenal gift. However, I was too immature at the time to appreciate it. I thought, I'll never need this. And so I found out where they purchased it, exchanged it, and bought something else, which I was 18. I'm sure it was very beneficial. It was probably like a video game, pizza or something. Fast forward a few months, I'm delivering pizza in a car that is literally held together by Gorilla Glue. And wouldn't you know it, my alternator was on the fritz and my battery was dead. And I really just needed to get to the O'Reilly's up the street. It was like two miles up the road. But I, again, was in this city where I didn't know a whole lot of people. I didn't have a whole lot of people that were willing to stop and help me out. And I thought, man, if only there was like this thing That I could connect to my battery and, and it would like start my car itself. That would be, why don't I have one of those? That would be such a wise and practical thing to keep on hand. Well, I had one. But that right gift had been given at the wrong time. I wasn't mature enough to understand it or appreciate it and it was discarded. What would have happened if God had acted sooner, if he had sent Jesus earlier, if the Christmas moment had arrived maybe in a little different setting, would we have been ready to accept Jesus? Would we recognize our incredible need for salvation? Would we be willing to to see his work and his generosity and appreciate it for the gift that it was, or would we have discarded it? I don't know. There's a lot of things I don't know. But what I do know is that something about this moment in God's mind was the right moment. Something about the human heart was ready to accept what he was willing to do. What he had been orchestrating in the pages of history, what he had been foretelling in the pages of scripture, it all came together at just the right time when we needed him most. And he delivered. That's the Christmas moment. Oh, little town of Bethlehem is is this really sweet carol and we sing it and it's got all these Hallmark feels and warm and fuzzies and stuff. But it's so much more than just another Christmas carol about the Christmas moment. It's a reminder of how God worked at just the right time, pulling all these different strands together to save the people that He loves. And maybe this morning you're experiencing that on a very personal level. You know, maybe the events of the world and the events of your life are all kind of colliding together, and you're asking different questions, and you're looking for different answers, and. And here you are today hearing this thing called the gospel about a God who loves you and who works on your behalf and who is never late but is always on time, who is never surprised but always knows what he's doing, even if his timing looks a little different than ours. He's the God that delivers at just the right time. And I want you to know that if this is the time where you're starting to ask questions about him and about Jesus and, and about this thing called the gospel, I want to encourage you. There's a connection card in front of you just pull that thing out, write your name, your phone number on it. Just say, I want to talk about Jesus. Very simple. Just turn that into the Connection Center desk, because we would love to have that conversation with you. A cup of coffee sometime at your convenience. We want to talk about this God who pulls things together at just the right time. It can work that same Christmas miracle in you as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereignty, for your foresight in knowing all things, in working throughout history and working throughout the the scriptures and throughout your people, knowing our needs so intimately and so fully, and acting on our benefit and our behalf for our salvation. Thank you for sending Christ when you did. Thank you for calling each of us individually, as you do even now. And I pray, Father, that we would learn to trust your timing, that we learn to trust your sovereignty. And in the midst of our trials and hardships and difficulties, we would come to rely on the God who's never late, who's always on time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.